Okay, thank you. Well, we welcome each one this morning to our adult Sunday school, trusting the Lord's blessing upon us as we meet together. And we're going to be considering this morning, moving on from our consideration of Arianism into Unitarianism, and specifically Henry Cook and the Unitarians. And we are skipping forward from uh, Arianism in the 4th century right through to the 18th, 19th centuries in uh, Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland specifically, but back in those days it was all Ireland and uh, the province of Ulster particularly. Uh, Henry Cook was a Presbyterian minister who dealt with Unitarianism in that denomination. And so while there's a connection here to Arianism, and Arianism influenced Unitarianism, we're going to consider uh, that this week, and God willing, uh, finish it next week as well. But let us unite together in prayer, and let's uh, seek uh, the Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God and our loving Father in heaven, we give thee thanks today that we can enter into thy presence. We thank thee that we can consider the great subject of church history. And Lord, we thank thee for the many faithful men who stood for thee generation after generation. Uh, we thank Thee for men such as Athanasius, whom we considered last week, who stood for Thee. Uh, we think this week of Henry Cook, uh, who stood for Thee in a different time and in a different generation. But even the issues were very, very similar. And Father, we pray that Thou encourage us today to stand for Thee to be inspired by these men of long ago, to take up the banner of the cross of Christ and to hold it high. Lord, we pray that would bless us. We do remember the Sunday school downstairs. Bless each child there. Bless Father, each family represented. Meet every need we ask of thee. And may we know thy presence today in thy house. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. We're going to turn in the Word of God to Jude, the epistle of Jude. There's just one chapter in the book of Jude. One little chapter in the whole of Scripture, but it's easy to find because Revelation is the last book, and then before that is the book of Jude. And so we're reading the first four verses of the book of Jude this morning. And the word of God says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before fold ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, 
turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the city centre of Belfast in Northern Ireland, there stands a statue. It has long been referred to as the Black Man uh, because age has oxidised the copper, uh, turning it a green colour, green-black colour. And the statue was erected in 1876 uh, by members of the Orange Institution, the Orange Order. And the statue is a memorial to a noted Presbyterian minister who died in December 1868. He was born Henry McCook. He was the son of a farmer in the year uh, 1788. And he was born in a place called Gorilla near Makarah, County London, Derry. And by the time of his ordination in 1808, uh, his surname was known as Cook. Ian Paisley, in his book on the 1859 revival, states that Cook was undoubtedly the greatest son that Irish Presbyterianism ever produced. Early in his ministry, he recognized the great issues involved in the Unitarian controversy and prepared himself to champion the cause of Presbyterian orthodoxy. J.L. Porter, his biographer, who was actually his son-in-law, if I remember correctly, he said that the importance of the work he accomplished cannot be overestimated. Presbyterianism in Ireland had fallen asleep long before he entered the ministry. The church as a whole was satisfied with a cold observance of the routine of worship. There was no power in the pulpit. There was no energy in the synod. There was no spiritual life among the people. Missionary work, whether at home or abroad, was not thought of. The church seemed indifferent to Christ's command and commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And when we think of Presbyterianism in Ireland, we may say today, well, we're in Canada, and these things are issues in the past, and it's not really part of our history. But when we trace Presbyterianism back, we trace it back to Scotland, John Knox there in the 1500s had come under the influence of John Calvin in Geneva. Knox went back to Scotland and the Presbyterian church was founded and uh, that church spread across Scotland and there are many various Presbyterian denominations that have come from the country, the nation of Scotland. And then in the 1600s, there was what was known as the Ulster Plantation Many men from many families from Scotland left Scotland to come over to what we know today as Northern Ireland, the north of Ireland, Ulster, and there they, they planted themselves. It's like an immigration. They immigrated from Scotland. They came to Ulster. They set up their lives, their homes. They had land. They farmed. Uh, they were engaged in all sorts of trades, but they brought with them Presbyterianism. And Presbyterian churches were established. Presbyterian ministers from Scotland came over and uh, they set up uh, the presbytery. They set up churches. They preached the word of God. And so these Scottish immigrants, as it were, came over and brought their faith with them. Those immigrants later on 
Uh, they were succeeded by new generations. Those generations, many of them came across to North America, and many in the 1800s left Ireland because of the potato famine. Uh, I was uh, talking to someone one time, and they didn't quite understand uh, all the issues about Irish immigration, and they thought it was a potato war, uh, the Great Potato War in the 1800s, but it was a famine. And the famine caused then uh, those of an Irish persuasion, many Catholics as well, but uh, many Presbyterians, to leave Ireland and to come across to North America. And of course, when we think of ourselves as a denomination, we're talking here about the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, the 1700s, the early 1800s, 1859 was the revival in Ulster, and then in 1951, uh, the Free Presbyterian Church uh, came out of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And many of our congregations in Ulster came out <coughs> or split away from specific congregations within the Presbyterian Church of Ireland. So prior to 1951, this is the history of the Free Presbyterian Church. And of course, uh, the Free Presbyterian Church came here uh, to Cloverdale in 1984, and our denomination uh, came into existence 2005. But before that, we were under uh, the presbytery in Ulster that traces back to 1951, that traces back uh, to what we are considering uh, today. So this is very much part of the history of our particular branch of Presbyterianism. And one of the great issues that affected the Presbyterian Church at that time was Unitarianism and Arianism. The Presbyterian Church had held to a Westminster Confession of Faith, the importance of a Confession of Faith, which is that systematic declaration of Scripture, cannot be overstated. But the Arians had refused to subscribe to it and to say that they believe it because they couldn't say that. The Westminster Confession of Faith sets Christ out as the Son of God, as the divine Son of God, and they could not agree with that. And so they had been allowed to continue in ministry in what was known in those days as the General Synod of Ulster. There had been a separation in 1726 where the non-subscribers had been placed into one presbytery, the presbytery of Antrim. But that separation was half-hearted and ineffectual. It would be like us today in the Free Presbyterian Church of North America, and we have maybe two, three churches that are Aryan in their doctrine, and we like set them aside and say, you can have your own presbytery, and we'll have our presbytery, but then there's the synod that comes above the presbytery. So we're still in fellowship with them. We're still serving the Lord. We still have uh, the same denomination, but they're kind of a little off to the side doing their own thing when it comes to important doctrines about Christ and his person. And of course, we would understand that to be not really separation at all. And that was the problem. That was the problem. But when we think of Presbyterian Church government, we have the session of the church, the elders of the church. They form the session. Above that then, there is the presbytery that is represented by the ministers and elders of every congregation. And then many Presbyterian churches have several presbyteries. And so if we were to have several presbyteries, we could have a presbytery in Western Canada, a presbytery in Eastern Canada, and we could have a presbytery in the Southern United States, for example, uh, if we were going to apply this to ourselves. But then above that, we would have a synod. 
And a synod would be the representatives from the different presbyteries coming together. And then, above that, there could be several synods, and above that, there could be a general assembly. And that would be the highest court of the church. Uh, But at this time, the synod was the highest court in the Presbyterian church. And there were sympathies in Arian theology throughout uh, the Synod of Ulster. Arianism, as we have considered, was named after Arius, who lived in 256 to 336. The Arian controversy in the 4th century greatly affected the church and led to the Council of Nicaea to consider this issue and to promote orthodoxy. Uh, We've considered that in the past. It's a non-Trinitarian doctrine, uh, teaching about the Savior, that he was a created being, that he did not always exist, and as a result, he was subordinate to God the Father, And so God, the Father, alone is eternal, and he created the Son. Some Arians taught that the Spirit was created by Christ, but the Council of Nicaea proclaimed that Christ was of the same substance as God. He was very God of very God. Unitarianism is anti-Trinitarianism. It's rooted in Arianism. Alan Kearns' theological dictionary states that in Ireland, Unitarianism caused havoc within the Presbyterian Church. Only the heroic stand of Henry Cook finally forced them out of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. It was a system of doctrine that rejected the Trinity and the deity of Christ, stating he was not God. It denied the personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he was not part of the Trinity. He was not a he. Rather, he was an it, And we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are the three persons of the Trinity. We use the pronoun he. But they denied that the Holy Spirit was divine. And they denied that he was a person. He is not some force, as some may teach, but he is a distinct person in the Trinity. Kearns also said that it repudiates the Word of God with particular reference to the doctrines of creation and the fall, the blood atonement, and resurrection of Christ and salvation by grace through faith in Christ. It rejected every idea of endless punishment. In a word, Unitarianism is man setting up himself as the supreme authority, making a God on the basis of that authority, and thereby worshipping himself in the God he has created. And so we see very quickly there through those explanations the seriousness of this. There are great fundamental doctrines of the faith that are being denied. We have an open position on baptism, but this was far more serious than someone holding a different position on baptism that we would accept as a denomination. This was going to the fundamentals of the faith, dealing with the doctrines that outline and explain how men are saved and corrupting them. And proclaiming and influencing through that corruption. And so this disease of Arianism and Unitarianism was spreading through the Presbyterian Church. And as we've seen, it affected uh, how they witnessed. It affected their evangelism. It affected their missionary work. And if we hold to any doctrine that is false, we deny some fundamental aspect of the word of God it affects our witness 
and our ability to serve Christ within his church. J.L. Porter wrote that the errors which prevailed in his church and country served largely to direct the studies and mold the discourses of Mr. Cook. He aimed at reform, to free the church from error, and to raise the people to a higher standard of morality. And these were his objects. The rise of Arianism in the Presbyterian Church dated back from the beginning of the 18th century. At first it assumed a negative character, and uh, the history then in the notes is told. Uh, there were those who pushed this view. They said that no church has a right to interfere with the freedom of thought, and so no church had a right to impose a creed upon its ministers or members. They would only acknowledge the headship of God. And so we find that the very structure and understanding of a church and how a church should be governed and how a church should lead was under fire. A church has a right to say to its ministers and to its elders and to its members, this is what we believe. This is what we stand for. This is what we believe the Word of God teaches. And if you want to become part of us, do you want to be a member in our congregation? Do you want to become an elder or a minister in the future? This is what you must embrace. This is what you must love. This is what you must preach. There has to be a standard. There has to be a standard. And how foolish it would be that if we did not have a standard on salvation, we would have someone come and preach on salvation through faith alone, and then the next week someone would come, and they have a different view that is accepted by the church, and they would say, don't worry about salvation through Christ alone. Good works, pay into the church, be a good person, don't miss a service. That's how you can be saved. And then the next week someone else comes and they have a different means of salvation. It's ludicrous. But a creed and a confession holding fast to Scripture guards against that and guards against errors on all manner of different doctrines. And so this support of Arianism, Unitarianism, was part of the New Light Party, it was called. The New Light Party met in the year 1705. They formed themselves into an association called the Belfast Society. It was designed for a mutual conference on issues that were in the Christian world. It promoted Arianism. And uh, there was rumors, grave rumors, moving down the notes quite quickly there, that excited dissatisfaction and alarm among the people of Ulster. The Orthodox party in the Presbyterian Church brought the matter to the Synod and carried a resolution to effect that all ministers be recommended to renew their subscription to the Confession of Faith. The Belfast Society opposed this, and they argued that every man's persuasion of what was true was the sole rule of faith to him. And so the issue continued, and I can let you read uh, those notes yourself. But the New Light theology spread throughout the Synod, spread throughout uh, the congregations. A gospel light uh, was not yet entirely extinguished in the Synod of Ulster. 
There are many who longed and prayed for revival in the church and reform in the state. And of course, there were political questions during this time as well. They lamented the errors in doctrine that had crept into the church and the concern about unity with England and Scotland and Wales, the United Kingdom and Ireland's place in that, of course, was a big political issue and still is to this present day. But moving into the 1800s, the tide began to change and churches showed a preference for more evangelical candidates as their ministers. Henry Cook gave testimony in 1825 and said that he was ordained in 1808. He believed he succeeded in Arian. Another friend was ordained at the same time. He succeeded in Arian. Another friend succeeded a very decided Arian until in one whole district, which was 20 years ago, entirely Arian. I do not know of one single minister you could suspect of Arianism except one. And so there was a change coming in, but yet at the level of the synod and the governing body of the church, there was nothing happening. These men were still allowed to minister. A porter continues and says in 1808, there was an event that occurred. There was a, a minister who resigned from his congregation and he was suspended for immorality. He appealed to the synod and at the same time applied to be reinstated in his congregation. And during the hearing of the appeal, he avowed himself to be an Arian. Uh, the appeal was sustained, uh, but it was carried by a majority that if re-elected by the people, he might be reinstated. Five members of the synod protested against this decision, and in the succeeding year they were joined by 12 others who assigned the following among other reasons because the Reverend J. Kerr denied the doctrine of the Trinity which we consider a fundamental article of the Christian faith the denial of which is utterly subversive of Christianity and they went on then to register their complaint but there was not a united stand at that point against Arianism the leaders of the New Light Party were men of great ability. One particular individual was Henry Montgomery. He was Cook's chief opponent. We'll see more of that uh, next week. Uh, but these men had the business of the synod largely in their hands. They were practiced in debate. They were eloquent in speech. Their appeals for freedom of thought and Christian forbearance made a deep impression on many who had no sympathy with their theological views. And their theology besides was not yet demonstrative. It was negative rather than dogmatic. And these men refrained from publishing their opinions on the fundamental doctrines of Scripture. One boasted that he had preached for half a century and no member of his congregation could say to what party he belonged. And their discourses were in general weak moral essays with little in them to alarm unless to instruct the sinner. There was peace, peace, as we would say, but yet there was no peace. And such was the state of the synod when Cook's name began to spread across Ulster. And when that issue came regarding this professed Arian who was suspended from his pulpit in 1812, Cook took no part in that debate, but there was an impression made upon his mind. He sat and he considered as to what was going on. Uh, the presbytery in which he belonged and 
into which he had been admitted was largely composed at that time of men who were part of this New Light movement in the church that he was in. Uh, he had replaced Arians, and many of the leading families uh, were Arian in their particular view. And so, as we've said, the ministers at that time, they preached, but they didn't, as it were, publish what they truly believed. The doctrines that they believed, the Arianism they believed, it affected their preaching. It affected what they were saying. It brought their sermons into the realm of talks about morality rather than preaching the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they did not publish uh, their systematic theologies that stated that they denied Christ and denied uh, his deity, etc. But those doctrines were the foundation of what they were preaching. And of course, we know that too well, don't we? What we believe affects how we act. What we believe affects what we say. What we practice. If we truly believe in Christ, if we truly love him and his word, that will show forth in our lives. As we come to worship him, as we come to praise his name, we cannot hide what is truly in our hearts. We may not stand up and say, our heart is like this. But through our actions, and through our words, that can betray what our heart is like. It was like that with these men. They were not prepared uh, to, as it were, put their heads on the line uh, for the false doctrine that they were promoting. Uh, they kept that to themselves, and they preached and their preaching lacked the fire, the, the persuasion, the urgency that should be found in true biblical preaching. And during this time, it is said by Porter, the cook's mind was being prepared. It was very much an intellectual debate. And he stood up in presbytery many times over the years after this and debated and debated. There was one particular event where uh, Henry, Henry Montgomery stood up and he spoke for a lengthy period of time. And I'm not sure if any presbytery today would allow a man to speak for the few hours that this man spoke, but he stood up and uh, he basically tore apart orthodoxy. He supported Arianism. And when he sat down, uh, there was great support amongst his brethren for what he had said. But there needed to be a response. And Cook stood up. He hadn't taken a note. He hadn't written anything down. He stood up and he spoke for a lengthy period of time as well and tore apart every argument that Henry Montgomery had made. And that was one of the great speeches uh, that led to action later on in removing those of that Unitarian persuasion out of the Presbyterian church. But it shows the mind of this man. It shows how God had blessed him in that way to stand up without a single note and to deal with all of these issues and to promote the cause of orthodoxy. That is why he was hailed as a hero in this particular division. As a man of faith, a man who was not ashamed of the truth of God, a man who was prepared 
to stand against it. There were those within uh, the synod who, as we've said, uh, were controlling it. And they were Aryan in their thoughts and they had their own agendas. But God raised up a man who was not prepared to let them do what they want. And he sought by God's grace to guide the church back to what it ought to be and what it ought to believe. Moving into some of his background then and his discovery of truth. His father came from English Puritan stock. And of course the Puritans, when Cook was born, uh, the later English Puritans uh, were in the early 1700s. And so Cook being born 70, 80 years after that, it's not so long a time period. Uh, many of the Puritans had uh, been dead for little more than a century, if, if at all, for some of them. His mother came from a Scottish family who had moved to uh, Balaki in County Londonderry. And his mother had a great influence on his life. His biographer said that proud of the struggles of her covenanting forefathers in defense of the faith and freedom, she never forgot fact or legend connected with her history in Scotland and Ulster. To her, Henry was indebted for more of those antidotes and incidents of Irish history, which in after years he recited with such power. He was taught at a number of hedge schools around the countryside. And of course, the schooling system then was very different than it is now. Uh, but he was taught in these schools. He entered Glasgow University at the age of 14. And at this young age, he was already familiar with many of those classic Greek authors. And he had been taught Latin and Greek. But he left university without a degree. As some would point to his father's illness or the fact that he found the lectures dull, but he did admit that the fault lay with him. But despite this, in 1806, he was accepted as a ministerial student in the Presbytery, uh, the Presbyterian Church. He was licensed to preach the next year, and his written piece for trial was on the subject, Is Vindictive Justice Essential to the Character of Deity? And that shows us something of the grasp that he had of theology and the scriptures at this early stage. Uh, the paper affords some good examples of that acute logical power, Porter said, which he displayed in such perfection in after years. But what is chiefly interesting is this, that it develops with clearness and force the doctrine of Christ's substitution as lying at the foundation of the atonement, and it strongly denounces the heretical dogma that an exercise of divine mercy alone, apart from Christ's sacrifice, could have saved sinners. In other words, he argued that Christ was needed. His deity was needed. His sinless life was needed in order to save us. His trial text was, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And he showed his opposition to the doctrines of Arianism as he preached. He said, had an angel or an inferior minister of God had been the person commissioned to publish the news of our salvation, to give the offers of the gospel which Jesus gave, then there would have been some excuse for neglect. But the person commissioned is no angel, no inferior agent. He is the same to whom the Lord says, let all the angels of God worship him. Behold then what a glorious personage holds forth to you the offer of salvation. He thought it no robbery to be counted equal with the Father. Him you may trust, for in him there is no possibility of deception. Him you may trust, for he is able to save to the uttermost. 
He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's displaying not only his understanding of these important and crucial doctrines, but he is emphasizing his own faith and his own belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was ordained and installed in 1808, and the minister in the church that he assisted in, he was ordained as an assistant. This minister was aligned to the New Light theology, but Cook was obviously more conservative. Religious indifference had plagued the community and the congregation, and he sought to reform it. He spoke in Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and Cook said that no power short of omnipotence was able to accomplish the great work which Christ undertook. Therefore, in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He entered the lists alone. Alone he triumphed, leading captivity captive and receiving gifts for men. He preached on uh, John 14, 27 and, Christ, and said that Christ himself has made our peace as the apostle hath declared. If then Christ gave his peace unto us, he must give himself unto us. This peace springs from and consists in his union with us. Because he liveth, we shall live also. His first communion address included these words, Come, communicants, and let us magnify the Lord together. Slaves too long in the world, let us deliver ourselves to Jesus to his praise, to his love, to his service. There are in heaven this day thousands and tens of thousands praising and adoring the Lord. Are your hearts joining the glorious choir, he said. Two things are before you, earth and heaven. Earth is perishable, heaven eternal, earth full of sorrow, heaven full of joy. Adhere to Christ and his cause. Be faithful, and heaven is yours. Porter said that the words of the eloquent young preacher went like an electric shock through the congregation. They had never heard such preaching. The dryness and the coldness and the intellectualism of Arnian preaching, the lack of that evangelical thrust, that lack of fire and fervency had changed the congregation. Some were deeply impressed. Some were angry. Uh, to be rudely awakened from that pleasant dream of security, and the senior minister was highly displeased. The fervent zeal and doctrinal teaching of Mr. Cook seemed like a rebuke to his apathy, and he was treated with coldness. His fervor was sneered at. He was referred to as being Methodist rather than Presbyterian, dealing with the emotions. Difficulties were thrown in his way that he was unable to overcome. It was said that he almost starved beside. His whole income was about 25 pounds a year in the Irish currency. And it is believed that he struggled to survive on that. And therefore he then resigned and accepted a position as a tutor in Kells. Kells is near Balaminerth's. The place where the schoolhouse was, the 1859 revival commenced there. And so he left the ministry at that point. One Lord's Day, the minister took ill, and Cook was called upon to finish the service. And news of his eloquence reached a local vacant congregation at Donegore. And he preached there and received the call to be their minister in 1811. 
They sided with the old light theology. They passed over calling Henry Montgomery, who was later Cook's chief opponent, as we've mentioned. And they called Cook to be their pastor. Interestingly, I could not find any specific record of his conversion. Uh, so often uh, we place a great significance on how these famous old saints came to faith in Christ. Uh, but yet I could not find any specific record. But there's an important point to make that in his life he showed forth the fruit of salvation. Men can tell of how they came to Christ and speak the words of how they came to Christ, but it's their life that shows that they are truly saved and truly redeemed. It is so easy to say that one is saved, but it is the fruit that gives evidence that one is saved, the fruit of the Spirit. And Cook knew that. And he experienced that. The day before he died, his son-in-law visited. He was asked to read Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12 just for a moment. Verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And Cook responded, the day before he died, what a prospect. Jesus, the mediator, the blood of sprinkling, farewell. He was one who rejoiced in Christ and his finished work upon Calvary. And so next week we'll move into more of the debate and what took place. Uh, but let us thank God for men that in the spite of opposition stood firm. Stood firm. If Cook had not stood firm, if others had not eventually come and sided with him, where would we be here today? Where, where would we be today? As I've said, we can trace our history back our specific branch of Presbyterianism traces back to Ulster. That branch of Presbyterianism traces back to the denomination that we're talking about here. And if Aryan theology had been allowed to grow and had been allowed to have a hold continually upon the synod, and the presbyteries and the churches, what would have happened in 1859 when God sent that revival? And some have said that maybe that revival was sent because these issues were dealt with. There was a change that had come over the church because of the great stand that had taken place. If we desire revival, if we desire God to move, then we need to be close to God. And we can't be close to God if we do not believe that his son is the second person of the Trinity, that he is divine, that he truly is the savior of sinners. And the sad reality is, moving into those practical thoughts, that churches can and do move away from their founding principles and doctrines. They ordain men that they ought not to ordain. They ignore heresies, errors, and compromise that they ought not to ignore. And if Cook had ignored all of this and said, I'll just be in my little country church and there I'll worship God with my little flock and there I'll preach and there I'll set forth the true gospel. But what happens outside of my little country church? Well, I'll let others deal with that. 
I'll just be faithful in my little corner of the vineyard. And how true that is, there must be faithfulness there. But the church is bigger than that. And of course, a denomination is bigger than that. And God's people are bigger than that. And the need to stand for truth is bigger than that. Though that little country church is a very important and central part and focus of that work. There was a greater battle that had to be fought. Oh, he could have hid away. In those days, there's no Facebook, no sermon audio, nothing like that. If you wanted to travel to the big city of Belfast, well, you couldn't hop in your car. And, you know, Cook lived maybe 30 minutes, 35 minutes today would take you into the city. You get a train, you get a bus. It's very easy. In those days, it was a lot longer. And so, in those days, it was more isolation. More peace and quiet to just work in your little country church. But yet, the Lord had impressed the truths upon his heart. He cared and wanted to take and desired to take that stand. We need to be aware that such men can creep in on a words. We're aware of that. Acts 20 tells us that. But Jude 4, where we read from earlier, tells us that. Men can creep in on a words. Men can become part of the denomination and part of the church, but their aim is not to preach Christ. Their aim is to preach the false doctrine. We need to remember that no church or denomination is immune, and so a great care and diligence must be taken to thoroughly test and discern men as ministers and elders. No church or denomination is immune just because we preach the truth just because we practice separation does not mean we are immune from what happened back 200, over 200 years ago. It can happen again, and it does happen. And therefore, there's a great necessity to pray for the leadership of churches, to have discernment and knowledge and grace and courage and strength to stand for Christ in these matters. Do you pray for the leadership of this church? Do you pray for the leadership throughout all of our churches? There's a great need for discernment, knowledge, grace, courage, and strength in leadership. There's a need to be separate from such effective churches and to avoid such ministries. And that is most necessary for our spiritual good. I remember driving down Highway 1 in Calgary through the city. And I think my very first time was... Back in 2019, I noticed a Unitarian church there. And I was thinking of, obviously, the great influence of Unitarianism and Unitarianism, what we're talking about. And I thought, you know, there's a church we'll never have fellowship with. There's a church we won't support. There's a church whose pastor will never be in our denomination. Why? Because we separate from that. We separate from that theology. We separate from that teaching because we believe it's not biblical. And we're to pray for men who are called and prepared by God to stand for his truth in his time. Constantly throughout church history, there are names of men God has called to take a leading role and to stand for him. Athanasius was one of them. Alexander 
there in Nicaea was another, Henry Cook. We can think of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. The list goes on and on and on. Let us pray for men in our generation who are like these men of old, who are prepared by God to stand for his truth in his time. Let us pray and let us seek the Lord. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for thy word today. We pray that thou would bless it to us. We pray that we would rejoice in what thou hast done. We think of this part of history that is so connected even with us today. As we look back across our own background and context, we pray, O oh God, that thou would impress upon us the importance of these truths and standing for thee. May we be those who pray, pray for men in leadership who know and love thee. Father, we look to thee that thou would bless us, that thou would strengthen our faith, that thou would cast out any thought of error or heresy, uh, that we would believe upon thy truth and stand firm upon the scriptures. Lord, bless us. We pray that thou would bless us now as we move into our worship service. Go before us, bless thy word to our souls, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.